All right, um, let's just, we're going to be carrying on our series that we started last week, uh, looking at the Gospel of John. Last week I did a kind of introduction to who the author, John, who wrote this Gospel, a little bit of his background, a little bit of his purpose for writing the book. Today we're actually going to get into the Gospel itself. So if you've got that Bible, grab, uh, go to John chapter 1. Um, we're going to, hopefully this year, the plan is to preach through the entire Gospel of John. 21 chapters of it, we're going to try and get most of it, one probably won't get all of it done in 2014 is the plan. We're going to go through everything that John wrote down about Jesus and we're going to study it as a church through our sermon series here on a Sunday. We're going to preach through it. Myself and some others will be doing that in our life groups when we meet midweek. We'll have a discussion question kind of each week that you might get a chance to use to talk about the gospel, something that's come out of a particular passage. Um, and I'm hoping that in your own times you are taking the opportunity to read and study and get into John's Gospel. Last week I laid out some ways of doing that. As the series go on, I'll recommend some resources. But whatever it is you're doing, try and get into John's Gospel. Read, to, read it, listen to it. You can get it kind of on audio, the Bible. Listen to it when you're, you know, you're doing your workout, travelling to work. But have an opportunity to study the book of John this year. Make a commitment to do that. We found out the purpose that John wrote this Gospel Um, last week, it's right at the end of the book, John chapter uh, 20 verse 30, he actually wrote the purpose of him writing down what we have as the Gospel of John is that people may know and believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That That was his purpose, that people would know who Jesus really was. And in turn, they would then believe in him and have life in his name. So the Gospel has a very strong evangelistic edge to get people to understand who Jesus really was and is. And for us, who may already kind of believe that, there is an opportunity for us to learn and grow and deepen our knowledge of that. And the the sermon series we we titled, uh, Who is This Man?, which is kind of the question John is seeking to answer as he writes. Who is this guy, Jesus? He is, that is so, uh, what's so important about him? What do we need to kind of grasp and understand about him? And by the end of the year, by the time we've gone through studying this book in 2014, I'd love all of us to be in a position to say, answer that question, but actually have a deeper understanding of it. That you've got to know this man Jesus better through the year. That would be a kind of a goal and aim for me um, uh, leading the church in 2014. That all of us would, by the time we've got to the end of this, you'd actually say, I know Jesus better. I, I kind of, what I knew here was good, and then by the end, 12 months' time, I've actually got a fuller, deeper, richer understanding. There's things maybe you didn't know uh, that you kind of learnt. There's maybe things you kind of knew, but they've become fresher and deeper in your understanding. So, we're going to look at the first 18 verses today. And the, 18, the first sort of section, 18 verses of John's Gospel, are considered by commentators, they call it the prologue prologue, the kind of beginning of the story, sort of setting the scene. And it makes me always think of, I don't know if this is helpful, but it's all I've got, so I'll share it with you. One of the greatest films ever made is, of course, Star Wars. And the beginning of Star Wars is that, you know, have the crash of the music and and then you have what? You have the title scroll, don't you, that goes up and it sets the scene, and it's kind of iconic now. People have mocked it, but it's on all the stars. There's that, it's the yellow writing on the black background of the stars that kind of goes up and it says, so it sets the scene for each film. And then kind of at the end of that, the action begins. It kind of goes into the sort of the narrative and tells the story. And this is, this is like that kind of beginning bit. John is setting the scene, laying some stuff out before he actually gets into the nitty-gritty narrative of the story. So these first 18 verses are like that. They kind of, they're kind of quite 
quite sort of large, broad brush strokes. I don't get into detail, so to speak, of people who said what to whom and where they were when they said it. It's all very big, broad concepts. Um, some people um, sort of describe it as almost like the driveway to a house. The house is the gospel, you get into it, but this is, like, this is the driveway as you're leading up to getting into the story. In this, uh, we'll find the overall theme of the gospel. One commentator summed up the overall theme of the gospel was, if you want to know God, then look hard at Jesus. That's kind of the overall theme where, go, where the gospel is going. Look hard at Jesus if you want to know God. And um, this will come out in the prologue. It will touch on many themes that will come up again and again in the gospel. It will touch on themes of light and darkness, which will come up again and again and again as we read through it. Um, I talk about witness and testifying to what you've seen. It talks about life. It talks about creation, new creation, acceptance and rejection, belief and unbelief. All these things come out in the prologue and they will be picked up again and again by John as we go through the Gospel. The prologue also outlines a central problem of the Gospel. And that you find actually in verse 11 where it says that um, Jesus came to God's people but they didn't even know him. They actually rejected him. They actually said, Jesus came. God came to his own people and they rejected him. But there's also good news in the prologue in verse 12 when it says those who did receive him found life in him. And so actually all these, thing, these things that God is going to build out over the next 20 chapters can be found in this prologue. So let's just read um, the first 18 chapters of John and then we'll get into the passage. So, getting at verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, I'm just going to look at three things from this passage as we go through it, and then I'll kind of pull out some application for us um, as we get towards the end. The first thing, Jesus in eternity, the first two verses. Jesus in eternity. It, the, the, the gospel begins in the beginning, which if you read that, you've got any familiarity with the Bible, your mind should go to one place which is the beginning of the Bible, beginning of Genesis, which starts in the same way, in the beginning. So John has taken us immediately back 
before time, before creation, to before anything existed. He's, he's drawing us all the way back um, to the beginning of everything. And this is different to how the other Gospels begin. Mark begins with John the Baptist. Here comes John. John makes the way for Jesus. That's how Mark begins. Matthew begins by going back to the genealogy and going, tracing it back to Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. So he takes it all the way back to there and shows that Christ comes from that line of Abraham, that, that sort of promise that was given to Abraham. Uh, Luke begins also with John the Baptist, but in the genealogy he takes it all the way back to Adam. He traces Christ's line through Abraham back to Adam himself, because Luke talks about the new Adam coming. Um, but John goes back even before then. Before Abraham, before Adam, before anything in the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word, we've got to understand two things that John is drawing together when we talk about the Word. The first one is from uh, Jewish thought. Um, Now, um, Jews trace their uh, their ancestry back to Abraham, um, and uh, they are kind of very proud of that. Um, But they they took God very seriously, and when they read out the Scripture... Uh, particularly in the Greek, uh, when they had the Greek translation of the New Testament, they wouldn't say the name of God. It was too uh, holy. So instead of saying the name of God, they would actually replace it with something. And what they would replace it with was the phrase, the word of God. The word of God. So he's, he's bringing this thought, this Jewish thought, actually this word of God phrase comes, uh, has a link to the divine, to God himself. And uh, the word of God, the spoken word of God, is associated throughout the Old Testament with many things. It's associated with God's powerful activity in the beginning, there was God, and what did he do? He spoke. Let there be light, he said. His word was spoken, and it has creative power. We see that in, uh, all through Genesis, where God spoke, and he spoke, and he spoke, and things happened. So the word of God is associated with God's creative power. It's also associated with God's revelation of himself. It says the word of God came to Jeremiah, the prophet, and commissioned him to be a prophet to uh, the nations. It says in Psalm 107, the word of God is associated with deliverance, um, from kind of enemies, but also from healing, uh, to bring healing as well. The Word of God has a restorative power as well, creative and restorative. It's how God communicates with his people. Many of the prophets, it says, the Word of the Lord came to them. It also find in Isaiah 55, the Word of the Lord is to do with judgment. God speaks his Word and brings judgment on people and nations. And so this kind of idea of the Word of God is God's sort of self-expression, kind of self-revelation. And ultimately, the Jews had the word of God in the, the scripture itself. The, laws and, the law and the prophets, they referred to that as the Old Testament. So that was kind of the Jewish thought, this idea of kind of this expression of God that was summed up in the scriptures they had. But on the Greek side, they had a very strong concept of the word of God, this logos idea. And it can be traced back to a, um, a philosopher called, um, if I get this right, Heraclitus, who influenced people like Plato and others who may have heard of these sort of philosophers. And he... Um, they, he was a philosopher and he developed this concept saying the world was always changing, always in flux. You get from him the famous statement of you can't step into the same river twice because it's always moving, always changing. That comes from him. And, and he said, well, how does, kind of, what's the overarching harmony in the world? What makes it all work? And he developed this concept called the word, the logos, this, kind of, this overarching concept in Greek thought that made everything make sense. And he called it the word um, of God. It was actually described in some of his writings as the divine captain and pilot of the universe, a divine force of reason. And that was kind of very much a Greek attitude to this word logos. And John takes the Jewish concept and the Greek concept and he brings it together in a way that is different to both of them. He brings it together and actually says, this word is not a concept, 
it's actually God. And this word isn't just kind of a creative force, it's actually a person. So John is saying, this word to you Greeks is not just this idea you've got, this concept, this philosophical argument, it's actually a person. And to you Jews, it's not just the creative power of God. There, there, there's, there's a, there is a distinct personhood to who this word is. It's not a principle, it's a person. And he makes this concept real. And then he just states, so he says, in the beginning was this word, and the word was with God, which means it was distinct from God. It wasn't God himself. There is a distinction now in this word. He's with God, but he isn't actually the same as God. There is a separate to this, which means we're getting into what we now know as a doctrine of the Trinity, which clearly states there is one God, but he is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, and each person is fully God. And so John is laying this out at the beginning, actually saying this word that exists in the minds of my readers, actually he's bringing it into something personal, something concrete. And we find out that this word, he shares God's eternity, which means he is pre-existent like God. There was never any beginning, because it was in the beginning was the word, just like in the beginning of God. So he shares God's eternity. He's been eternally with God, because the word was with God. So he's actually with God, he's like God, he's with God, he's been there with him, and he's also one with God. There is a, there's no distinction between the two in terms of their essence. And so we get this kind of burning out of the Trinity. This word is, is, has always been with God. There's some, some thought, you know, Jesus was created, um, you know, he's distinct or he's lesser than the Father. It's not true. No, he is fully and totally and completely God. And John is stating this right there, out there in the beginning. Secondly, as we move on, we, um, we look at um, Jesus in creation. So he's always been eternally. But when it comes to the created order, when we get to verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. All things, and all things actually means all things. And John states it positively and negatively. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. It's the same thing, just different way rounds of saying it. Which bears out what other New Testament writers, Paul writes in Colossians, that all things uh, were created on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, were created by Christ. The writer of the Hebrew also says the same, that all things were made through Jesus. He is the origin of creation. Where everything came from, you can trace it back to Jesus. What's the kind of the answer? Excuse me, to the creation of the universe, it's Jesus. He is the origin. All things were made through him. Things weren't made from a kind of pre-existent primordial stuff that was there. It all was made out of nothing by God. He created out of himself. And the universe is dependent completely on him. It's not like this new age kind of thinking where actually God is in the stuff. God and the, the creator order are distinct, but yet the creator order is totally dependent on God, on, on what he does, his sustaining power. And Jesus was right back in there, in the origin of creation. We get another theme coming out in John as we follow the verses through, which is this whole idea of light. He mentions life, but he majors on life in there. And that, that tracks back to Genesis as well. John is keeping pushing us back to where Genesis... Because what's the first thing God said? in the book of Genesis, let there be light. Let there be light. He's, he's associating that with this, this idea of the word, who we know is Jesus. And it is hinting to where we're going forward in the gospel. You're going to get a lot of light, light and darkness. Christ even says, I am the light of the world. And there's a lot of imagery John uses with light and darkness. Darkness represents the forces that are arrayed against Jesus and trying to stop him in his mission and kill him. And it says three things about this light. It says the light is to every person. It's the light of men. It's light to all. It's not an exclusive light. It's to everyone. It shines in a context. It shines in the context of the darkness. It's opposed to the darkness. But it says the darkness has not overcome it. 
So what we have here, we don't have dualism. A lot of people kind of think about kind of Satan and, and God, kind of these equal and opposite forces that are battling it out. And one, who, will, who will win? We hope the good guy will win, but you're never quite sure. Actually, no, that's not, that's not what we're saying. The darkness cannot overcome the light. The light is too powerful. The light is too great. And so this word that has come forth, this word that was at the beginning, is light and it will overcome the darkness. And it is responsible for everything we see, all created order. So John is putting this idea of Jesus above everything, above any concept, any idea, he rules and reigns supreme because he is responsible for all creation, holding it all together. So we have the word in eternity. It's always been. The word has been completely responsible for creation. And then the last one there, we have um, Jesus in history. So we've got Jesus in eternity, Jesus in creation, and Jesus in history. Because the, the tone dramatically changes in verse 6. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's referring to, of course, John the Baptist. And he, he was, he, John gets his authority. Why has he been mentioned? Because he was sent by God. He was commissioned by God. So God's hand is in this. And uh, he, he, he actually fits in the role of people like Moses and the prophets, sent and commissioned by God for a specific task. And what was his task? And this is important. It, the, word, the word comes up three times, I think, in like two verses. And that's the word witness or testify. You might have in your Bibles. John's role, he uses the language of the courtroom. The language of the court, and he is to give testimony, to witness to something that he has seen. He's not there to say anything on his own authority about himself. He's not there to embellish the truth. He's merely to repeat and talk about what he has seen. He's called to be a witness. The purpose, he says, is that all might believe. It states later that John knows, I'm not the light. I'm not the one that you should be looking at. My role is to point and testify and give witness, bear witness to someone else, the light. And that is what his role was. Which, interestingly, if you think about us as believers, as Christians, you're a Christian here, that's your job. To bear witness. To give a testimony about something that you have seen and heard. You're not, you're not basing it on yourself, your own goodness, your own intelligence. You're actually merely pointing out to someone else, which is what John did. I, I, he points... It's this one over here. This is the one I'm to bear witness to the lion. All our role is to simply tell others what God has done in our lives and point to him. We point to him with the Bible. We point to him with the testimony of how we've lived. God changed my life. Jesus saved me. He forgave my sins. He turned me around. And all the other hundreds of stories we can tell. But that's what John was called to do, sent by God to testify um, about the light. It moves on, verse 9. It says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is a reference to what we call the incarnation, Christmas, Christ coming as a man, being born in a sable. Um, the true light just means a real or genuine, the ultimate one, he's coming, he's, he's a personification of truth and goodness, and it's coming into the world, which shows the world as a dark place. When we read John's Gospel, when he talks about the world, John invariably talks about it in a very negative way. It's a very good way. So when he says he's coming into the world, the world and darkness represent the world we live in, that forces that are arrayed against Jesus. And this light to everyone divides people into two camps. It divides them into those who accept him and those to, who reject him. It's stark, like light is. You've got light and darkness. They're stark. They're opposites of each other. And when Jesus came as the true light, he showed, up, he showed the world up for what it was in darkness. And those who don't accept him through rebellion and rejection 
um, will be opposed to him. And John is just setting the scene for what we know comes through the gospel and ultimately happens at the end of the gospel when it looks like the powers of darkness have triumphed over Christ. We know they didn't, but it can appear like that. It says he came to his own. The creator of the universe came to his people that he had created, the covenant nation of Israel, and it says they rejected him. They didn't kind of receive him, which has been a theme that has run through the Old Testament. The people of God, it started with Adam. Adam and Eve, God made his people, put them in the garden, and what did they do? They immediately rejected him. They said, no, we want to go our own way. And as we go through the the story um, of history, we find the people, men and women of God, constantly rejecting him, rejecting him. And uh, it sets out the problem of the book, of the men and women of God who Jesus came to. And it's the same for us. We can look at them a bit down our nose. Are they kind of, they rejected Christ. We would have done the same. We still do the same so very often. Um, It's why we need a saviour. But that's the problem of the book that John is uh, outlining. The created rejected their creator. They turned their back on him. They thought they knew better. And it's a theme that we will come again and again. And we're guilty of that. We're guilty of our own responsibility, our own sin. Um, we rejected Christ. We thought we could go our own way. The only reason we can get around that is because we've repented of our sin, put our faith and trust in Jesus. But it says, we've got the good news there. It says, verse 12, it says, but all who did receive him, it softens what comes before. Those who received him, basically that, that receiving is an idea of welcoming in. It's more than a label. You don't, just, you, know, you don't just stick a label on you and everything's fine. It's actually you're receiving a person and trusting him and bring them into your life. So those who received him, who received Jesus, those who accept him into their life, it says they who put their faith and trust have a right to become children of God. And so what John is outlining here is a new covenant, the new covenant believers. So it changes from the kind of the physical ancestry of Abraham to actually a new covenant, a new group of believers that are based on faith and trust. And then it moves on to use this imagery of birth, which we'll come to in chapter 3, one of the famous imageries in John, John's Gospel, about being born again. It says there, it says, those who write to come children of God, who weren't born of blood nor the will of the flesh, and we're having babies, he's referring to there, it's talking about spiritual birth, new birth, um, and all that that involves, and that's going to be coming up um, as we get to John chapter 3. And this wasn't by the will of man, this is an act of God. It takes an act of God to create a believer, to put someone um, in a place where they have faith and trust in him. Moving on, it says, and here's the key part, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. To make all this thing true and happen, the word that was in verse 1, that's kind of sort of gone off the scene, comes back and talks about dwelling among us. This is... This is Christ coming to earth. And that word dwell um, literally means uh, pitched his tent. Actually came and pitched his tent and lived on earth. I know we, um, we went camping last year, last year as a church. We went to the Catalyst Festival and we all turned up at that showground and we pitched our tents and we lived there for a few days. And it's like Jesus came to earth and he pitched his tent and he identified with people and he lived them. And that's what John's driving at. He talks about that. He said, he pitched their tent and he dwelt among us. He became one of them. He became flesh, which means he became an actual man. He wasn't some disembodied, bodied, floating spirit, you know, just kind of floating three inches above the ground, around, kind of above, aloof from the human condition. The human, uh, this human sort of suffering and what he saw. He was a man, flesh and blood. If you, got, if you saw him, you would be able to 
kind of look at him and say, yes, a guy. If you grabbed him to hug him, shake his hand, he would have felt like a man because he was a man. So God literally entered creation, became a man and lived among his people. Jesus was fully man. It says, um, so he dwelt among us, um, lived among us as a presence. And what that allusion is, is to, if we go back to kind of Exodus, we talk about the, um, they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was a vast tent that was ornately made, and it was set up by Moses, and when the tabernacle had been built, the presence of God dwelt in it. So again, John is pulling his kind of Old Testament sort of imagery and theology into the beginning of this gospel, saying where the people of God were, the presence of God was in the middle, and the people literally camped around it. So they were right around the presence of God that came and landed among them. And then when they kind of they took uh, Jerusalem, they built the Solomon built the temple. The presence of God dwelt in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the people. So this imagery of actually Christ coming to dwell amongst the people is that same idea. But instead of being this kind of closed off place where the presence of God in, surrounded by some sort of building, it's actually that presence was dwelt in a man. The temple was his body. That's what he came to do. So he came and lived uh, among us. And it says, we've seen his glory. This refers to the visible manifestations. As we go through the book of John, there's a series of signs. John actually at the beginning starts mentioning this is his first sign, this is his second sign. After that, he lets us work it out himself. But there are signs through the book of John culminating in the ultimate sign of his cross, the cross and resurrection of who God was. And so we have seen his glory. He's talking to personal testimony. As we looked at last week, John witnessed all this stuff. He was there. He saw it. He saw the man Christ but he also saw the man who was fully God as well, doing all these miraculous signs. He was there at the cross. He witnessed the resurrection. It says he was, this Lord Jesus was full of grace and truth. He's referring back to Exodus there where it describes the Lord. In Exodus 33 it talks about, um, the, God says to Moses, I, my goodness will pass in front of you. My goodness will pass before you. Um, it talks about, um, it talks about uh, in Exodus 34, about I'm um, the Lord, um, great compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's, he's, he's pointing to those images of God. This is who Christ is. That same glory that God displayed to the people of Israel was displayed through Christ to, to those who would, who would see it with the eyes of faith. And they put their faith and trust in him. John, it says in verse 15, bore witness to that. He's the one who cried out. He pointed and said, this is the one from whom Israel has been waiting. He's been waiting for this man. This, this word has come in flesh. He's dwelt among them. You can understand the, um, the, kind of the urgency of John's preaching message. John was quite a character, John the Baptist, with his crazy beard and his funny clothes and his strange diet. But he was the guy who would have yelled stood there and said, this is the one you've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. Prophecies, expectation. He said, this is the one. The word has become flesh and is living amongst us. And look, there he is. That's what he was proclaiming. That was his message. And he kind of pushed it forward um, with, a, with a passion. And it would have been interesting because John culturally was actually ahead of Jesus. In those days, um, John was older. He was older than Christ and he started his ministry before him, which would have put him as a preeminent position. Kind of, he would have respected their elders, he would have started his ministry first, Christ came along, but John, knowing who he was and knowing who Christ was, actually willingly laid that down and says, actually, no, this one is greater than I am. And that's why kind of John, um, John the Gospel writer, John, puts it in there and he's saying, he cried out, this is the one who it is. He comes after me, because he was before me anyway. We've seen the word was there at the beginning and pointly, uh, points out Jesus as this one. 
And it says um, that we have received grace upon grace from this Christ. It's a funny sort of um, phrase there and I had to look it up and read around trying to understand what it actually meant. And one of the images I came across was like the oceans, uh, you know, like waves lap on the shore. You get a wave and if you stand and watch it, it recedes and then what happens? Another wave comes and it's like this constant kind of waves going over and over. And it's like that. We receive grace upon grace from Christ. Grace instead of grace. I'm not going to give you grace. Tell you what, I'll give you grace instead. There's this constantness that comes from the person of Christ towards his people. Grace upon grace. And we get to receive that um, as believers, as people who've kind of put our faith and trust in Christ. The grace of God comes to us. Because it says the, um, the law um, came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. So there's this sense that no one's seen God. Even Moses, kind of when he revealed God, he actually kind of said, he saw his back. You know, there was a sort of, there was the back where he said, I'll reveal myself to you. He actually only saw the back. When Isaiah saw God um, in Isaiah chapter 6 in the temple, what he actually saw, it says, was his, the, train, the train of his robe. There was kind of that's that's kind of the, the bit he kind of had contact with in the temple. There was the Lord was sort of behind, and he was terrified. But actually, what we see here is God Himself has fully revealed Himself in Christ to us, to His people. He was at the Father's side. There's that term of intimacy. The Word was with God, but He has come to His people and He has fully revealed Himself to them. That's what John's kind of driving at. And so we get to the end of the prologue, and we should be excited as we step into the gospel as God, John is going to reveal this word to us bit by bit. God has come to earth. I'm now going to reveal what he did and what he said. We should be excited thinking, actually, he's come after all these years of longing. What did he do when he was here? What's going to happen? And that's what John is going to kind of reveal over the next 20 chapters of his book. Let's find out what he said and did and how that affects our life. Let me just put together three things that we can learn from this um, kind of to earth it in um, as we finish. And uh, kind of an answer to the question of the series, who is this man? There are three things we can take from here. The first one is Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. And these are two, two truths we have to contend with. It says in the beginning was the word and he was with God, but then it also says he dwelt among us. Two things. Jesus Christ was fully man. He was born of woman. He had a natural birth. He was like every child, like Isa who got born last week. He was born of a woman. He had a human body. Is that dramatic effect or is that me? <laughs> okay. He had a human body. He grew in stature, it said. It says he got tired, he got thirsty, he got hungry. There was one point he couldn't carry the cross, he was too weak. Someone else had to do it. It said he slept um, in the storm. Even his resurrection body was human kind of in form and appearance, although without imperfection and glorious. It said he had a human mind. He, he grew in wisdom. He learned things. He had human emotions. It said he was troubled, sorrowed, sorrowful, marveled. He wept at the death of Lazarus. It said he was tempted in every way in the book of Hebrews. He was fully man. People saw Jesus as just a man. There's one bit where it was, um, people commented, isn't this just the son of the carpenter? Kind of almost in a derisive, you know, derisive way. You know, who is this guy? His brothers didn't believe who he was. Imagine your brother. I have two brothers. Imagine if they suddenly declared they were the Messiah. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, that's what his brothers saw about. He's just a guy, they said. But at the same time, he was fully God. 
He spoke a word and the storm was still. He multiplied loaves and fishes and fed 5,000 men plus the women and the children. He turned water into wine with a word and a command. He healed the sick multiple times. He raised the dead. Lazarus come forth. Brought the dead to life. He knew things. We're actually going to see in just a a couple of sermons time where he, he saw Philip and Nathaniel under the fig tree. He knew it. He knew the woman at the well in John chapter 6. Bring your husband. I don't have a husband. No, you've had five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not, the man you're living with now is not your husband. He knew who would betray him. Judas, he knew. He knew things that only God can know. He had the authority of sovereignty. He could forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven. He could speak that out. He had authority when he preached um, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon kind of ever preached or studied and marveled at today by many who don't even know Jesus. He, had a, he was one who taught with authority, it says time and time again through the Gospel. He, was, he couldn't even die. They couldn't even kill him. <laughs> Killed him and he came back three days later. No, didn't work. Um, and he received worship. We see that at the John, end of John, John's Gospel. Um, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He received worship. Jesus was fully God. And as we go through the Gospel, we need to tell these two truths in, in, in kind of tension, which is not always easy. That Jesus was fully man, completely in touch, kind of a human, could relate to us, deal with us in every way, but he was also God. And these are important because the, the only way he can be a mediator between us and God is if he is fully man to identify with us and fully God to identify with God. That's the only way he can, he can be the perfect mediator. And we need to contend for these truths in our own mind and our own heart, but also in how we kind of live them out and speak to others. Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. He was something so much greater, so much bigger, so much further beyond that. Number two, Jesus is the one who makes God known. He is the one who makes God known. I remember I was, uh, when I was a young, young man, I am a young man, when I was a younger man, a teenager, I remember going sitting in um, like youth talks, and I, it's funny when you hear things that you can still remember today. I remember when I was like about 16, I remember hearing a youth a leader teach from this passage and he, he gave this phrase which I still remember today which was kind of the sum up of his sermon he said Jesus in history means God's not a mystery that's what he kind of kept saying Jesus in history means God's not a mystery and even as I was preparing this kind of thinking it just kept rolling around in my head I thought where have I heard that before and I remember who said it I remember where I was when I heard it and actually that's for us today Jesus in history means God's not a mystery God, because of Christ, he has fully revealed who God is to us. Not in the exhaustive sense, we know everything. But he has revealed himself to us. There's always more to learn. But actually, if we want to know God, we look at Jesus. When people talk about God, and you hear it from friends, and in the news, and in books, it's often a muddle, it's often a mystery, there's often kind of, well, what is it, how do you relate to God? God is above us, God is kind of in everything, or is he, or is he part of creation? God is the, the watchmaker who wound up the Lock of the world and then you know, left. All these kind of things. No. It's easy. What, if you want to know God, where do you go? One place. Jesus. You look in the face of Christ and that's how you get to know God. He came as a man to fully identify us, by with us, but he was fully God at the same time. And so if you have any questions about God, any kind of, or what, you know, what about this, what about this, where do you go? You go one place. You look at Jesus. 
Look what he's taught, look what he's said, and you, you deal with him because he has revealed God to us. God is no longer a mystery because Christ has come and he has made himself known. So any questions you have about God, look at Jesus. That's where you go. Third one, last one. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. It says there, it says, but um, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The only way you can get to know God is through Christ. Only way. There is no other way. There is no uh, sort of rules you can follow. There's no kind of path to enlightenment. It's all about a relationship with a person. You can't live a good life and get to know God. You can't kind of hedge your bets for the end of time. If I do all right now, give some money to charity, help our women across the load, I'll be all right. No. The only way you get to know God is through Christ. Christ is the only way. He said it himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. We're going to get to that eventually when we come through John. Jesus dealt with the ultimate problem when he came. That's why he had to be fully man, fully God, because he dealt with our problem for God, which was our sin, our rebellion, our activity against him, which we were morally responsible for and under God's judgment as a result. Jesus came as the perfect man, lived a life we couldn't leave, died the death we should have died, rose from death victorious and then said, come follow me. Come follow me and put your faith and trust in me. He's the only way to God. If you're not a believer here today, I'd love to talk to you about that and what that means for your life. If you are a believer here today, fantastic. Keep going. Keep going. Keep following. Keep putting your faith and trust in him. Last thing, what does this mean for us right now? I want to say look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Be awed and amazed by him. Get into this gospel. Please. If you haven't started reading it or taking some time to start it yourself, do it. Just read it. If it's only a chapter a day or just a section, read it to you. Get into it. Ask this question. Who is this man? Find out about him. Look to him and, and put your faith and trust in him. Put your faith and trust in him because as we look at him, we are then transformed. It talks about us being transformed from one degree of glory to another. In the New Testament, we are totally changed. The kind of Bible where there is sanctification, we become more and more like Jesus. And we're going to worship Him in a minute. We're going to do it through singing, um, using our gifts to praise Him, praying out, prophesy, whatever you want to do. But I want to encourage you: look to Jesus. He's the only one for where we can kind of know God. He's the only one who's revealed it to Him. And God has come to us. It's not something we've earned and built ourselves up. It says the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. It wasn't the word responded to an email request to come and join them. But God took the initiative. He came down to earth. He came among his people and showed them a way. He lived a life that they couldn't lead. The way where they were supposed to live, but they just couldn't. And he dealt with the problem. He dealt with the problem so we don't have to live a life of trying to do good and do better. God's already done that. It's already been dealt with. We can just live a life of actually faith and trust and actually knowing all our problems have been kind of dealt with of sin through Christ and we can just give our faith and trust and love to him. So do you want to stand up? I'm going to pray and we're going to worship God. The band just want to come and get ready. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. while we start. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you 
that you were there in the beginning. You saw all this before it even happened. Lord God, I want to thank you that all things that have been made were through you. There's kind of nothing outside of your sphere of control or power. Lord, I want to thank you that you hold all things together and sustain all things, even us here right now. You're the one holding it together. It's not based on anything else. There's no kind of randomness and chance we have to worry about. You are holding all things together. Lord Jesus, and I want to thank you above all that, Lord, that you came and you dwelt among us. Lord God, when we were lost, when we were rebellious, and we were dead in our sin, and we were your enemies, you came and you lived amongst us, Lord. I want to thank you for that, your presence on this earth, Lord Jesus. I want to thank you that you lived that life that we couldn't live, that you showed the way, that you demonstrated that way, Lord, on the cross, Lord, that you died in our place for our sins. Lord, you bore the wrath of your Father that was rightfully due to us, Lord Jesus. You broke the power of sin and death and at the end you cried, it's finished, all over. Lord, I want to thank you that you rose victorious from the grave, Lord Jesus, that you called us to be your people, Lord Jesus, that you saved us when we were lost, when we were far away from you, you saved us, Lord Jesus. And that wasn't based on our own merits, because we have none. We had none, we have none, we will never have any. Lord God, it's only based on your grace. And I want to thank you that that grace comes to us again and again, like the waves on the shore. You may have had grace yesterday, but we're going to get grace again today. Lord, and it's going to keep coming, and it's going to keep coming. We're going to receive grace upon grace from you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that that isn't dependent on our behaviour, because if it was, there'd be plenty of days where we didn't get any grace, because we wouldn't have earned it. But that's the great thing about grace. We don't have to earn it. It just comes. And Lord God, I ask you to pour out your spirit now on your people. Lord God, that we may worship you, that we may love you, that we may yeah, glorify your name today. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that we are your children. You gave us that right to become your children. And God's people said...